0: Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm gonna be covering the path to financial independence or what we used to call retirement. I wanna show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I wanna show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful retirement review dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class.
1: I think that the fear of not having has always sat with me and always been something that, you know, even as far as having children and making the decision to have children, it was like, I will do anything to make sure that my children never have to experience what I had to experience. And, you know, Jonathan, like, I wish that that was the kind of end of my story of, like, poverty and that type of thing, but unfortunately when I was 18, I was uh, kind of kicked out of my, my family's house and I was homeless for a period of time as well. And so, during those periods of time of experiencing like severe lack and severe scarcity, you know, of of all of money of, of everything, it shifts your perspective and it makes you a little bit more resilient, in my opinion, when it comes to how you navigate things. Do you think
2: money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with. And share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life.
0: Hello, welcome back on this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast. I'm chatting with Riley Clemenko. He is a sought after business sales coach specializing in helping ambitious coaches and entrepreneurs. Grow their businesses and close more sales. She teaches elite conversational sales and has worked for Bank of America and TD Bank, among other financial institutions, before leaving corporate and beginning her own coaching practice. She's the founder of M3 Coaches. M3 used to stand for Millennial Money Muse when I met her back in 2020. She is a business sales coach, a speaker, and a mentor for a new wave of heart centered entrepreneurs. And just as an aside, Riley, I recently added heart-based founder to my LinkedIn profile. So uh, we're talking today, there's something in the world and said that we should talk today. So uh, welcome to the Minds of Money podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. And the alignment is absolutely beautiful. I love that. I love cool. that.
0: So Riley, just to let our guests know a little bit about you, like where do you call home? Where are you connecting from? Where did you grow up? Give us a little background.
1: Yeah. So uh, where I call home today, I'm just outside of Boston and I've been here for... Oh, gosh, probably over 25 years now. My Originally, I was from the UK, so I was born in London. And I would call myself an original nomad, <laughs> an original digital nomad. <laughs> because growing up, I lived everywhere from Jamaica, I lived up and down the East Coast, back and forth to England, and so on. So background was a little bit unusual. I know I spend a lot of time on my great uncle's farm in jamaica which when you think of jamaica you think of the beach and the you know the oceans and being right next to the water and this was in the middle of the country like where the mountains are and all that stuff so goats and chickens pigs and horses all the stuff and no school and all that good stuff in the early days so it definitely is a shift but uh, that's me from the very beginnings of and how i kind of started and we came to the U.S. My mother was in the U.S. first, and then when she realized that I wasn't in school, and I was <laughs> my great grandmother was raising me at the time, she realized I wasn't in school, and I was kind of, you know, like living the country life. Uh, we can't really have that, and so like for me to come live with her in the U.S. and uh that was my my transition over to the East Coast.
0: How old were you when you when you moved to the U.S.?
1: So the first time, seven.
0: Okay, yeah. So, you had spent a lot of formative years on a Jamaican farm. I didn't know that about you, which is that's very cool. So, did you learn what you learn about money on the farm, or about entrepreneurship or business on the farm?
1: That's a great question. Well, so farm life in the country is a lot of bartering, a lot of sharing, a lot of you know giving back and forth within the community. And so, uh, of the things that always comes to mind is you know, like if there was a pig that was going to be slaughtered, for instance, like that would be shared among multiple families. People would be mm-hmm. coming and like right, picking pieces, picking parts of it up and taking it. And that bargaining system was important, especially in the farmland, right? And like grains and things like that for the animals, you would, there'd be a lot of sharing. It wasn't always just a bye bye. The system was a big part of that. But that's one of the key lessons I actually learned about money. Not to say on the farm. My my great grandmother bought a house in Montego Bay during this whole little experience of the farm. That was the whole reason we went to the farm, was fishing, buying a house closer to the ocean in Montego Bay. And um, she was take me down to the flea market. And Montego Bay is known for its outdoor market. They're beautiful. There's tons of different things, food and clothing and textiles, all types of amazing items. And she would give me a little bit of pocket money to go shopping with. And one thing that really always stuck with me about this is that I was the person who would try to make that dollar, that those coins go as far as humanly possible. And what was important about all of this is that everything I would buy, whether it be like a watch or whether it would be like a little pocket bag or something, it would you know, very quickly like disintegrate or just break or something, right? Because I was buying the cheapest possible items ever. So my lesson here, was that there isn't like money. You could waste money by buying things cheaply, by buying things that don't have tremendous value. And that isn't it better to save up and buy things that actually are things you're going to want to hold on to, you're going to want to, that are going to be impactful and meaningful to you. That was one of my key lessons.
0: That was a lesson learned before you were seven, though. So we'll forgive you for buying stuff that's kind of, you know, less quality when you're, you know, when you're five and six, I think that's reasonable lesson to learn there. So that's good. I'm a little curious about once you transferred to the United States and you moved, did the lessons continue in money? Uh, Were your parents, was your mom an entrepreneur here? How did you get from there to starting your own business and doing everything you're doing today?
1: I love that. Okay. So I actually never told anyone this to in this way, and so this is <laughs> the first I'm going to share it in this way. But oh, my mother was not an entrepreneur. My mother she moved over to the U.S. She had me when she was 19. She was very young, and that's why my, my great grandmother raised me for the first mm. you know, portion of my life. She first came to the U.S. She was actually working under the table. She didn't even have the you know like right paperwork to be able to work was waiting on her paperwork, and believe it or not, like a very high-end department store actually hired her to work there and create income initially. And um, when she brought me over to the U.S., she still was incredibly stable. We were actually, you know, really struggled in the early days. She had worked for an apartment complex, and, you know, we got our apartment subsidized based upon her working there. But money was a real thing, like food. We didn't always have you know, the luxury of just having whatever we wanted to eat or, or that type of thing. I remember when we first got together, we had a pull-out sofa. That's what we slept on, was a pull-out sofa. And who knows where this pull-out sofa came from. I don't know where it came from. But that's what we slept on together. And the first thing that she purchased when she had the money saved to be able to do so, she said she, she wanted to purchase a bed for me. That was the first thing that she wanted to purchase. And she did so into a store. And we we're looking at the different beds and we we're looking at what we can have and that type of thing. And I chose a bunk bed because I wanted her to have a place to sleep as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, it, and that was the way it was for quite some time. My mother ended up getting married and I was in my early, and, you know, my stepfather is an incredible person and has, you know, dramatically changed our lives there and after. As a part time entrepreneur as well, was always looking at how he could create additional income. His own business as a software driven engineer, as well, and always had a hustle. So, when I saw that, it really got me the insight like, wow, there's other ways to go about this. But I didn't take it very seriously my own entrepreneurship journey, nor did I think it was either possible because I don't think I had a role model with someone who took it very seriously. Like for him, that was a side hustle, that was just extra income. Yeah. And I didn't really think that this was a thing for me. And it, oh,
0: Yeah. Just real quick. I want to, how do you think the scarcity, the sleeping on the sofa with your mom, how do you think that translates into, you know, your desire to be successful? And, And I ask this because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, since my brother died, I've done sort of a deep dive into what has driven me. And I think one of the drivers was I was raised with very little. And I'm just curious if that was something that's driven you as well, or if that, if you didn't note that i mean you you just noted it just said it but did it affect you that way or was there another way that might have affected you
1: so yes it has affected me it has affected me deeply i think that the fear of not having has always sat with me and always been something that you know even as far as having children and making the decision to have children it was like i will do anything to make sure that my children never have to experience what i had to experience and You know, Jonathan, like, I wish that that was the kind of end of my story of, like, poverty and that type of thing. But unfortunately, when I was 18, I was uh, kind of kicked out of my my family's house and I was homeless for a period of time as well. And so during those periods of time of experiencing, like, severe lack and severe scarcity of of all money, of, of everything, it shifts your perspective and it makes you... A little bit more resilient, in my opinion, when it comes to how you navigate things. And so, you know, one of the key words I used to always hear when I was a banking and I was, you know, talking on stages or connecting with other bankers and shifting into the sales stuff was, you're so resilient, Riley. No matter what comes up, there's just so much resiliency there. And I didn't actually like that word. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to be resilient. <laughs> like, I, I, don't, like, I would just like to have an easy go of it for a little while, right? But I realize it's actually a superpower. Resiliency is something that we have to look at as a, as a superpower because in entrepreneurship, it requires resiliency. It requires you to be able to look at things and to be able to weather the storm and to be able to realize that not everything is going to go your way, not everything is going to go the exact way that you want it to. But by having strategy, by having consistency, and by continually, continuously persevering towards your goal in mind. And for most of you, it's like creating deeper impact and touching other people. By keeping that in sight could actually bring it to life.
0: Yeah, you know, This is completely off topic, but I love where we're going with this. And so I want to ask this, you have young kids and you were raised in a space of scarcity and that gave you the superpower of resilience. So how do you give them the superpower of resilience? Because I'm assuming you're not going to let them be raised with scarcity and that I ask because now that my kids are 17 and 14, my kids are older, you know, they're both in high school. What I've noted is no scarcity in their history, less resilience. Like, you know, they run up against something hard and they're like, maybe they don't want to push through it. And so how do you give them, or have you thought through maybe giving them some resilience, not having the same scarcity in the backdrop?
1: So I, I think it's so hard because there's a side of us that doesn't want our children to ever suffer. The side of us that doesn't want our children to ever suffer, to ever have to go through what we went through. But there's another side of us that's like, by doing so, it developed and shaped who we are today. By having those harder moments, you are now shaped into the person you are. I wouldn't be the sales coach or the speaker I am today if I hadn't had those experiences. Those, that's what shaped me. I'd be a completely different person. And so as a parent, you're always wondering, like, am I shaping in the right way? Am I developing the right way? You judge every little moment. And one thing that I have found in all of this is that we can't, we have to release. Yes, we don't want spoiled bread, but no, we, you know, we know we don't want codependent, right? But we have to release the fear that that's what they're going to turn into because as long as our core goal is to teach them yeah. to be good humans, teach them to love one another, to give back to others, right? To be wise with money and to be stewards of money, not to just use money but to be stewards of money that's how we raise good people and I learned from you actually I learned from you that generational wealth only traditionally lasts up to third generation number three right and so that has been my core back pocket <laughs> as, I wow. been, as I have been thinking about how I'm developing my own children with that peace of mind it's like If we don't teach them to be stewards of money and to have their own children be stewards of money and to look at this as how can we help others and be reliant upon self, they're going to really have a hard time. And what we develop right now, no matter how hard we work, will be gone in three generations, and I completely refuse to allow that to happen.
0: Wow. That's the second time in this podcast, I had a little tear come to my eye. So I appreciate that very much. Just real quick. I want to talk about one of your successes. I read on the website that I don't know what age in your life or what stage in your life this was, but you had sort of built up $117,000, $118,000 consumer debt, and you paid it off in 18 months. How did you do that? And then put that in the context of, you know, were you an employee or were you had you already launched your coaching practice?
1: Yeah, so good. So the $117,000 in debt was, oh my gosh, you ever think of that thing that's hanging over you like an evil cloud and you're you're thinking to yourself, how do I get through this? How do I get away from this? Maybe if I ignore it, it will just go away. And it didn't happen overnight, which is the worst part. It happened over time. So I guess I can share it this way. My entrepreneurship journey, all of this started, starts with my entrepreneurship journey. This started with A red drink. (laughs) It all started with a red drink in Thailand. It really did. I attribute the debt. I attribute everything to this red drink in Thailand. So I was on my honeymoon with my husband. We were in Thailand and it was hot. We were in a street market and we were having like fried octopus and fried squid and street food and all types of delicious things. It was amazing. And we passed this vendor and I had wanted the mango juice. And he looked at me. The vendor looked at me and said, like, newlywed? And I was like, yeah, because you know when you're first married, you're all proud. (laughs) Not that you don't continue how proud you are. When you're first married, there's something really special. As you get married for a longer period of time, it's not quite as special. (laughs) It's just like, yes, we're married. That's mine. (laughs) So I was like, yeah, yeah, so I'm newlywed. And he's like, okay. And he's like, he gives me this red drink and he says, give it to him for vitality. And I said, oh, okay, Cool. Like go oh, give it to my husband. Like, you know what it says. Don't wear it. It's really good for you. It's healthy. Just drink it. So he drinks the drink, and we come back and we're pregnant. We come back and we're pregnant. <laughs> and you know, come fast forward a couple weeks later, and we're on an ultrasound. We're the very first ultrasound. I had just come back from New Jersey after a training. I was 13 weeks pregnant, and the technician looks at me and she's like, "Are you on fertility medication?" And I said, "Well, no." <laughs> Said, well, I asked because there's two. And my husband was just like looking at the screen, right, like back and forth, his head's just shaking. And I'm like vibrating with complete, like, just excitement, exhilaration, just the best thing ever for 60 seconds. And then I see her just keep going over the valley over and over again, looking, 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 something was missing. And come to find out, we're having one of the most rare type of twin pregnancy, no demand. It was called monoamniotic Monochorionic twins. Long story short, it was gonna require us to be hospitalized, require me to be hospitalized at 24 weeks. I had just found out I was I got pregnant. It was 13 weeks. 11 weeks from now, I was gonna be in the hospital for X amount of time until the babies came. It was gonna be a matter of not if I had NICU time, but how much NICU time babies would have. And we had to make some really hard, really hard, heartbreaking decisions immediately. With like no sign, right? So I went from this beautiful, idealistic moment to a super hard moment. And what ended up, what happened is, you know, like the company I worked for at the time didn't have maternity leave. So we had just FMLA to work through, which doesn't give you your entire pay, right? And I went from being prepared to have one baby to now having two babies, which was interesting. Then I went from thinking I was going to have a normal pregnancy to having a pregnancy that cost over a million dollars. And then, you know, I was young, I was 28. I had my babies when I was 28 or 29. I turned 29 in the hospital. Then I had them both two weeks after. And I didn't have, you know, we needed to get child care. There's no child care, like in that. So we had to get we went gotten to pair. And it was all of those expenses that just kind of came up, came up, came out. And there's no excuses for not paying attention to money. I was really tired. <laughs> I was really tired. And so it just, it compounded and slowly but surely it became this out of control thing. And so we looked at
0: So that was the cause of the debt.
1: That was the cause of the debt. It was Uh, a big uh, part of it. We had, you know, bought a a car that could fit all of us. I had a two-seater Acura. (laughs) We bought an SUV. We had decided to go down the road and have the old pair. And then from there, we just kind of were doing life, right? Like living life. And then we're just seeing things kind of creep up, creep up, creep up. And I'd still had student loan debt and all of those things too. And we still had some debt from the honeymoon and the end of the wedding that we thought like, oh, no probably we're going to pay that off in a month or two, which very quickly shifted to something very different, right? So, you know, fast forward a few years and what happened is I decided that I just couldn't live this way. I couldn't live with this thing covering over me. I felt so like I was working so many hours, 68 hours a week. Some weeks, 80 hours, and just, I was so overwhelmed and tired. And I wasn't spending much time with my kids. I'm pretty sure I missed their first steps. Pretty sure that I did not hear the first worry. And, you know, the old parent, I love her. And she's like, I daughter to me today, but I think she lied to me. I love her for doing so. Wow. <laughs> you know, but like those things were all missed. And so my husband and I looked at each other and I'm like, we have to do this right now. Because, and there was something intuitively that said it needs to happen right now. (laughs) It can't wait. There can be no delay. It can't happen in six months. It has to happen. It's very well. It take dramatic action. If you don't do this now, it's going to be terrible. And I have been really led to follow my intuition. But my intuition speaks that loudly. I've been led to just follow it. And so I did. And I only sold the car. We paid off so much. We side hustled. We sold stuff. We did everything I possibly could. And... But let's
0: put this in the in the timeline. So you have how old are they at this point? The twins? The, the twins are one. So at the this point one. It, they're out of NICU. they're one years old. You're back to work 80 hours a week, not getting ahead, not catching up. And did you quit the job at that point? Or did you just say, No, we're gonna we're gonna use the money that's coming in. we're gonna pay everything down, and then we're gonna make that transition.
1: Yeah, no, I, I wasn't brave enough to quit
0: my job. Okay, <laughs> okay. I was gonna say I thought
1: you were gonna jump and chip and I'm like, oh wow, not bad yet. I wasn't for that. So this was this was twenty. So the girls are actually two. This was twenty nineteen, okay. was when this kind of came over, and it was January of twenty nineteen. It was like we need to do this now. So we dug in, and yes, we did. And then what happened? So paying off, paying off, selling the car, like paying off all the credit debt, paying off student loans, doing all the things. And what was interesting about this timeline is that I had gotten pregnant with my son in august and we were still in that mode of paying up debt so it was like not you know not the huge things we're still paying paying and then 2020 hits and it's the pandemic and we had just like that was the end of the time frame and if we had not been in that position i would have never been able to start my business
0: so what were you doing at you know single corporate
1: 2018 actually it was 2018. It was applicants yeah. It was 2018 that we started paying off the debt.
0: So, what were you doing at corporate, you know, when the pandemic hit? Because it sounds to me like the transition happened. You know, pandemic hits. It's a matter of months before you're like, okay, I got to do my own thing. Well, explain that that transition. Because yeah. you just paid off 118 thousand dollars of debt. You've got two year olds. You've got a baby. And then you're going to launch your own enterprise. Like that seems like you had everything against you. Yep. <laughs> right. Basically.
1: Yeah. So, no, what ended up happening was the pandemic hit in 2020, right? In March of 2020. I was due in April. At that point, I had been working through, <laughs> I had been working through a program and developing a program at the bank called the Aspire Program. And that program was built to take that next generation of leaders. And bring them to a leadership position to help them, t- to cultivate them so they would be successful in role. What the bank had realized at that point in time was that a lot of people that were coming in externally were coming in and they were not doing well in leadership positions, right? They were suffering, or were making silly mistakes, that type of thing. And they were leaving pretty rapidly. And they also realized that their internal talents had not been cultivated, not been developed and ready and prepared to step into these leadership roles. The market prize event like, reached, come up, came to me and reached out and said, Riley, I'm not sure what the solution is, but we need to do something for these individuals so that we can get them ready and we can stop focusing on having to find extra talent for these internal roles again, again, again. And so I said, oh, run. Let's, I'll do something. So what I did is I created a six-month development program and I reached out to executives in different lands of business figured out the pillars that were most important to them being successful in role, found executives to hit each pillar, talk them into coming in and leading a training course, <laughs> like leading a trench course on their pillar. And then uh, these people through the program, the program was one of the things that I'm most proud of because we had started, this was a test group. and We had 13 people initially at the, we had 14 people initially. Out of the 14 three of them, two of them had left the bank during the process. One had said she wanted to exit the program. She was ready to move out into a position ranked. The other eleven all graduated from the program and all were promoted to leadership positions. So it was
0: So you actually talked to internal leadership, you know, got their, you know, moments of this is what made me successful. And said, Okay, that's what made you successful. That's what you're gonna teach. And so the internal people, you built it from scratch and you brought people internal in leadership roles to actually teach everyone else all these pillars that you identified as the things that make people successful in leadership at this bank. Is that, do I get that right? So how much of that translates into today's coaching? Like how much of those pieces, you know, do you take and say, okay, I'm going to take this, these elements. I'm going to now apply it to my own clientele. And then how did you make that shift?
1: So that. Ties so beautifully to entrepreneurship because entrepreneurship is leadership yes it is a hundred percent leadership and so what I found as I was working with people and as I was working to help them with their sales conversations is that a lot of times it wasn't just you know we need to have better sales conversations to close more sales. A lot of times it was the resiliency it was the strategy it was the consistency. And bringing in the right clientele, qualifying the clientele, following throughout a process to help them connect and build relationship and ultimately close sale. And so what I learned at building this program at TB has been a huge part of what I'm training on now, because that's one of the pillars of how you're going to get to that next level. Right. And whether you are looking to, you know, be a six figure entrepreneur, seven figure, eight figure entrepreneur, Leadership is at its core. And so today I teach people how to identify their leadership. I actually normally tell people this part because I focus on the sales, of course. But we'll keep it a secret. We'll keep it a secret. secret. (laughs) But part of what we do is we help people identify their unique leadership style. And then we teach them how to style flex between different leadership modalities that they may need to step into from time to time.
0: Style flex. I've never heard that word before. Style flex.
1: <laughs> Style flex. So for instance, you may be, you're a relator and you're also analytical. You're also a thinker. Mm-hmm. And so when you are someone who enjoys connecting, building connectivity with other people, it may sometimes be difficult for you to step into a more director hat where you have to be really straightforward, really kind of to the and hold really firm boundaries with others. But that has to happen within your life and within your business at some points, too. So we teach you how to kind of be aware, be mindful of what you need to be at that point of time, and then to kind of put that hat on, to flex into that hat during the period of time that you need to, and then put it down, be go back to your normal your normal self.
0: So I'm just curious, as you're talking, I'm wondering, are the people you work with today, you Coach, are they mostly running their own enterprises or are they mostly employees like in sales roles?
1: So my clientele are typically entrepreneurs. Okay, That's who most of my clients are. And when I say entrepreneurs, typically they're individuals who are selling high ticket or desire to sell high ticket and want to learn how to have better sales calls, have better connections with people, right? And help them through the decision-making process in a way that is heart-centered, in a way that they feel in alignment with and the way that allows them to be as powerful during the conversation as though they were, you know, actually coaching someone or just working with them within their own normal process—that's what they truly want. The sales process doesn't have to be something that feels that you feel discomfort in, that you feel, you know, easy in. All those words that come up feel manipulated into. Those are old school tactics, yeah, and they really don't work today. And that's the thing—they don't work with today's buyers. These buyers are so sophisticated because there's so much available to them, right? TikTok is the most popular, the biggest search engine in the world right now, just surpassed YouTube. And it's like the information people can get is at their fingertips. They can get it quickly. They can make really detailed buy decisions with information today. And so we should be cognizant of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the idea of this is on your website, like I think it's on the website where you say, you know, sales isn't a numbers game. I think it's very clearly not a numbers game. So it sounds like what you're teaching is how you make the most of every interaction instead of maximizing the number of interactions. And I put this in the framework that when I started in the business, you know, I started on Wall Street with Wall Street firms and they hired me because I could cold call. They hired me because I could make 300 dials in a day. And I would literally dial the phone 300 times and maybe get in touch with 25 people in a 12-hour period and maybe get, you know, one, yeah, you can call me back. Like that was the most painful process of sales possible. And so don't recommend it. But what you're saying is you can actually be more successful doing it a totally different way and you're teaching people how to do that. Is that right?
1: A hundred percent. Yes. Oh my gosh. You know, I, we all see the ads for, I'm going to get you, you know, 300 appointment sets per week per month. And, you know, can you handle those calls? And it's like, who wants to get up 300 calls a month? It's crazy. Like, the thing about it is that if you're working with a qualified audience, and if you know how to qualify your audience and how to build that connectivity, what ends up happening is you have 110 calls, right, with qualified leads, you shouldn't be closing three. <laughs> If you're not good, you should be closing once. So what does that mean? You have a high ticket offer and you're trying to hit 10K. It's two sales a month, right? If you have 5K offer, it's two sales. What does that come out to? And if you have a 10% conversion rate, that's 20 calls. That's if you're not doing really well, right? So it's like this idea that we have to use, we have to have a churn and bird game of taking as many calls as possible or sending out as many DMs direct messages as possible, that's not how this works anymore. It doesn't have to work this way.
0: Which, by the way, as the recipient, and I'm sure you are too, as the recipient of this DMs, it just makes me mad every time I get one. Like, it just infuriates me. When they haven't done their homework or they are just, hey, you've connected or would you like to connect? I want to sell you something. Oh my God, not working.
1: Right? It's terrible. And the audience is so fatigued by it. They're so tired by it. That when you are just a little bit different, when you're a little tiny bit different from what everyone else is doing, it's like, what is happening? <laughs> they become shell-shocked because it's a different vibe. It's a different thing. And so what we teach at my company, what we teach is how to ask questions in a way that allow people to get to a decision. Yep. So it's not about having a script. It's not about having this thing that you read off of and you're hoping that this works for every person or having to act out like you're Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie or something. Because most entrepreneurs are not effective like actors. It doesn't work. So people can tell you're reading. Give it up. <laughs> right? So we teach people how to think on their feet and how to ask questions on their feet. How to feel really comfortable asking the hard questions. Because they know they have a really great answer to the hard questions. They have a really great solution to those hard questions
0: you know, by the way, and this is maybe the next chapter, but all those things you're talking about, asking those tough questions and just being very direct and all, those are all great, you know, tactics for public speaking as well. It's a great way to just be very direct and very honest and just ask questions and talk people through things. It's that that's kind of what you do from the stage when you're sort of interacting with a crowd of folks. So thats you could be a speaker coach at some point. I want to bring in, there's something I know that's near and dear to your heart. It's near and dear to my heart. And I want to kind of tie into the sales teaching. So this the idea of, A, most people hate the concept of sales, even though, but let's just admit we're all in sales, but most people hate the idea of sales. B, if you're going to be the highest paid person at pretty much any place, you've got to be good at sales. If you're going to run your own company, you've got to be good at sales. Like sales becomes very, very integral. So how does the dislike of sales, the fact that it's so necessary, And the interest in the wealth gap, how do those three things work together? Because you said earlier that one of your key demographics is black and brown business owners. So is that intentional? Are you saying, I'm going to help them because I want to help bridge that wealth gap? Or is it just, those are the people that come to you?
1: Yeah. So, okay. So it's your first question about, you know, kind of diving in a little bit to how people feel about sales
0: in particular.
1: Okay. So I don't think it's that. People don't want to sell. I think it's actually people don't know how to sell. And when you don't know how to do something, you start to feel resistance towards it, right? People innately want to be good at what they do. They want to feel confident in what they do. Think about it this way, right? If, you, if you're playing a new sport, I played volleyball last night, for instance, right? And I played for the first time on this rec league and we had great, grand old time. But one thing that I found with the league as I was watching people play is that there were some people who seemed to play quite frequently and they were just having the time of their life. They were having the best time. They were diving for the ball, throwing up the hits, setting the ball, doing all the things. And then there were some people who don't play quite as frequently. You could tell that they didn't have as much practice of play. And they were getting frustrated with themselves, right? They were apologizing if they missed the ball. They were, you know, kind of like, Getting into themselves a little bit, getting into their head a little bit if things were going the way that they wanted to go. That's how I think people feel about sales. For the people who practice, they know how to navigate, they know what type of questions to ask, they feel prepared for any situation, any set, any straight ball, they feel prepared for it, then they're ready to go and do a kill. They're ready to go and get it, right? For the people who don't have as much practice, they don't have as much. Experience doing it, they then are going to feel uncomfortable. They're going to feel like they're not good enough. They're going to feel they're going to get in their own head about it and they're not going to want to do it as well, which is also why people start to fall off and the season continues because they may not feel as good about what they're doing. So I genuinely believe that with more training, with more knowledge, with more practice, I don't promise anyone that there's just a, a rapid fire way to get it done because it, it doesn't exist. And anyone that tells you, I'm just going to give you a script and you're going to go and you're going to make a hundred K is lying to you. Like, it's just it, right? Like we practice twice weekly in my container, my last friend. We practice this morning. We practice again tomorrow morning. We practice twice weekly, every single week, because that's what it takes. It takes me, if you start your day off with practice, imagine how confident you're going to go when you get that first objection, or when you get that first person who says, you know what? I, I just feel like I need to speak to my spouse. I need some time to kind of make that decision. And you had just practiced it a couple hours early and you know exactly what to say to really find out if that's their true objection, if they really do need time, or if there's something else holding them back that you can address and help them through. Hmm. Right? Like that that's what I think it takes. When it comes to building wealth, do I target my the black and brown community? Do I target will it look like me? I would say not intentionally, but I think you attract who you attract. Yeah. And I think that there is something about a woman who is unapologetically selling high ticket products and that's telling you that you could also sell high ticket products and that is doing it completely boldly, like in my own way, or authentically, telling you what real life is happening in my life every day, telling you, like, today was a hard day. My kid had a complete mental breakdown <laughs> and, and it just wiped completely away and sharing with you what's happening for real. Right, being hugely authentic. I think that there's something that people are attracted to about, that. and that so other women can kind of see themselves and say, "Wow, if she could do this, or X amount of time without the help, working five hours a day, an hour in the morning, and then three to four hours in the afternoon after the kids are in bed, I wonder what I could do." Right, like I wonder if I could get a t- some of the results, or similar results, or even better results if I take put the effort in and take the action so i think that's more it than myself and me just targeting certain certain groups i think certain people are going to feel comfortable i think i'm going to attract certain people i know i'm going to repel certain people like i just will do it unapologetically because i have to like right you know that meant for everybody if you weren't scripts and you want me to just yourself, you i'm not going to do it because it's not going to help you it's not going to help you think on your feet and they're going to really reject it in the long term do you think it's
0: I kind of struggle with asking the question, but do you think it's okay that you will attract black and brown women and I might attract white women and white men to, and I, yes, of course it's okay, right? That, of course it's okay. It has to be okay. And we do have a moment in culture in not just the United States where black and brown business folks haven't gotten the same capital investments. You know, black and brown entrepreneurs don't get the same support, don't get the same capital, don't get the same approvals at banks for loans, don't get the same. So there's a ton of stuff out there that says that it's not an even playing field. And you and I have talked about some of this in the past and some of the other groups we've talked in, but what do you think we can do? I know that you're already practicing it, but what can everyone do to kind of, you know, bridge that gap? What are some of the things you're working on?
1: It's so interesting, Jonathan. It really is. The reason it's hard to answer this in a really good way is, is do I think that it's fair? That Because I want to go back to that. Do I think it's fair? Not entirely. I think that sometimes, you know, that there can be a stronger onus on professionalism for mm. like a white man who says that he knows how to sell and says that he knows how to, you know, teach you how to sell versus me being a black woman and who's going to trust and, ex- and like. You know, yeah. that kind of immediate yeah. buy that someone might have, you know, that piece can sometimes be missed. Do I think that's fair? No, my expertise, my knowledge, my background should speak for itself. That should speak for itself. But do I accept it? Sure. Because I'm still gonna kill it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still gonna kill it. And I'm still gonna help the people that need to go to hell. And I'm still attracting my audience and I'm still making my strides. So do I think that it's all fair? Not entirely. Do I accept where it is right now? Sure. And do I make it my personal mission to help more people make money? A hundred percent. I think a hundred percent. Because the more people, especially in my opinion, especially women, the more women who have significant wealth in their hands, the more decisions that are made by people who have never actually had the ability to make these type of decisions. Money allows you to make decisions. It allows you to have more of a voice. It allows you to have your voice to go through. And so the more people that I can empower to have more of boys, to create more impact in their communities, to create more impact in the rest of the world, it becomes a ripple effect. Right. So whoever they help, my clients are transformation coaches, our life coaches, our marketers, are a plethora of different things. And the ripple effect of them being able to help two or three more people a month, five more people a month, ten more people a month. And in turn, those people helping more, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah,
0: that's how it starts. So you start the wave with just one little drop of a rock and you get the ripple out of that, right? Yes. So there, one of the things we focus on in the Mindful Money podcast is sort of really simplifying stuff. And there's so much, there's such an incredible volume of noise out there. I like to ask, like, what is one thing that you think, maybe it's somebody in sales, maybe it's somebody in business, what's one thing that they can focus on and improve that will absolutely make things better for them? And then the other side of the coin is what's one thing that they're hearing about, that people are talking about, that it's just noise and they should just ignore. And if you take it out of a personal example, like something you focus on that works and something you focus on that maybe I shouldn't have focused on, I great.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So when I think about what the key thing that I can tell you to focus on right now to get more traction in your business, it genuinely would be to understand how to close sales consistently. How to close, how to create income in your business consistently. Yeah. Making one sale every other month, every two months is only perpetuating like the rock things, right? That means something's broken in your system. And having a system that you can rely on is what's going to build the foundation for the generational wealth, for the legacy wealth, for all of those pieces. And so what you need to have a phenomenal system. The reason I say and they just focus on it in the right way. And the reason I say this is because when I was first starting off, you know, I had Focus on taking as much information as humanly possible. Reading as many books as humanly possible. I had a whole thing where I was going to read fifty-two books in the first year because I wanted to <laughs> absorb as much, thinking that that was the key to entrepreneurship. If I learned everything, then I could execute on it. And what I found in that is that although I don't regret any of it, because every single part of my journey has led me closer and closer and towards what I truly want to do the impact that I truly want to create. There's no regrets. It's all just part of the flow. But the reality is that a lot of that time, spinning my wheels, creating, building, landing pages, looking for perfection, looking for the perfect website, looking for the perfect... I've really revised my website four times. Each time is like 20 hours of work left, right? You know, trying to make my makeup perfect if I were to go live, being so afraid of how my voice was going to come out. Was my accent going to come out? Are people going to look at me as competent or incompetent? Worried about what other people think. If there's one real thing, systems side that you should take, it really is. Release what other people think. It could just be you. Just be authentically you. Step into that. Stop worrying about perfection. And take imperfect action consistently. Imperfect action consistently. It's going to yield you the success that you're looking for over perfect action inconsistently because you can never take perfect action consistently. You can't. It's not possible.
0: Right. It's be- a beautiful phrasing. I've never heard it phrased that way. So that's, I very much appreciate that. What's one thing that, you know, draws our attention away that we should just completely ignore? Let that go. Oh my
1: gosh. Okay.
0: So- or 10 things You got a list. I'm
1: going gonna- <laughs> <laughs> to give you my stuff, Okay. There's one thing that I just highly recommend. And it's okay if I, it's not like there's no charge for it. Mention something, a little thing. Okay. Yeah. There's this tool called Newsfeed Eradicator. Okay. Don't even worry about what that is right now. Just download it. <laughs> download your desktop. <laughs> the eradicator.
0: News feed Eradicator.
1: Newsfeed Eradicator. What that does is it literally eradicates the newsfeed on your desktop. So when you go into Facebook, you can't see what everyone is saying, you can, you know, of course you can mute it for a period of time or what have you. But here's one of the things that gets in the way of so many people. We spend so much time scrolling and looking at what other people are doing and trying to copy or compare, right? This person just had $50,000 on this person just made a million dollars. This person just had a hundred thousand dollar a month. This person just took on 10 clients. Why am I not getting the same results? We spent so much time trying to compare that we don't spend the time taking the In perfect action and we don't spend the time being consistent because we're spending too much time in our own heads worried about what other people are doing or what other people are thinking and so by doing that you are going to eliminate that distraction that noise so you could take action because all of that's just stories they're just stories that you're circulating in your own mind telling you that you're you know you're not good enough in comparison to this person your audience is going to want your message People aren't going to resonate with you. You don't speak well enough. Like your accent's coming out too thickly. All of those things are just stories that you tell yourself to hold you back from being able to help more people with a full transformation. So the opportunity is to stop the noise and to get started.
0: So many people have said, turn off your social media feeds. You actually gave us a tool that helps us when we want to turn it on to stop us from doing it. Like it will actually eliminate What was it again? One more time.
1: Newsfeed Eradicator. It's a free extension. Grab it. I'm telling you, I love it. My whole team has it. (laughs) Everybody has a thing. When I see their screens, I see it. It's literally one of my favorite things I recommend to my clients. It will help.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to go a little bit personal here before we wrap up. What was the last thing you changed your mind about?
1: Interesting. Let me think about that for a second. What was the last thing that I changed my mind about? I had an event planned for Vegas, for Las Vegas. It's actually going to be next month. It was VIP days with some of my clients and that type of thing. There was a incredible opportunity to speak on a phenomenal stage in Vegas. And I can't say which stage it was, but just it was one of the big ones. <laughs> it was one of the big stages. It was a very well-known hotel and it was huge and it was going to be a great event. And I actually made a decision on two, And mm. it, the reason I made the decision not to is because I realized that in doing so, it wasn't the right time. Like, you know, what? It wasn't the right time. And so some people may think that like, okay, was that coming from a place of fear? Was that coming from a place of like, where was that coming from? It wasn't fear. I was ready to boldly go on that stage. It was, what's the strategy behind going on that stage, right? Like what's the end goal of the strategy of going behind that stage? And when I cried out what the strategy would be and how I would navigate it, perhaps for going new clients or what that would look like, it wasn't going to bring the conversion rate that I needed to mm-hmm. to make it worth it, to make it worth that opportunity. And so it was a hard decision, but I, I made the decision not to move forward. And Vegas is there for me. We're going to be good friends in the future. I know it. But at the, that moment in time, it just wasn't the right thing. And then what was beautiful about it is something else came up the same exact week as I was making that decision, which is how it all works sometimes, how the universe works. Like, it just, you think, you think you're, you know, you're, you're being stopped, but actually you're being pushed forward. Yeah. And an incredible opportunity in the Caribbean came out that is even better, right? Yes, even better. In the Caribbean, like, i just want to be. It's even better as, as a matter opportunity. So, I went that route instead.
0: Wow, great story. So, is there anything, and this gets a little bit more personal, is there anything that people don't know about you or that maybe you've mentioned once and people forget about you that you really want them to know and remember? Like, what's that thing about you where people lose it and you're like, I really wish people knew this.
1: Hmm. I think the only thing that is core to me, and that, you know, that thing where you say, what do you wish someone would say when they go to your eulogy, Or what do you want to be a for? The key thing that I want to be a remembrance for is helping others create impact. It's not about my own impact. It's not about Me, me, me. I want to help others create a deeper level of impact. I want to help others create wealth. I want to help others shift their family perspective. I want to help others not have to go through, you know, poverty or food insecurity or all those things that are discomfort. And I want people to realize that being philanthropic giving does not require for you to live without to. Right. You can give and you can create it more impact, but you have to take care of self at the same time. And sometimes, especially women entrepreneurs, especially women entrepreneurs, we are raised with this idea that asking for money is something that is bad. And that if we do get money, we need to give it all away. Right. And I experienced this. I had my first 50K month and I can't, (laughs) I literally can't. (laughs) What am I going to do? Where is it all coming from? Like, how am I going to, what do I do with it? And I literally went into a, a shift and I was like, I can't even tell anyone about this. How do I tell people that this happened? It took me a month to even share that I had hit this milestone in my business. And I just want women to realize that they can do more by having more. They can create more help and help others by having more, but you got to take care of yourself first. You have to have your own foundation, your own structure up first, right? Because it does no one any good to, for you to suffer when you're trying to help the world.
0: Right. I love that. And I'm sorry that you felt like you couldn't share that with people. I mean, that's a huge milestone. But now you have in your past and you're past it. I know that. But uh, yeah, that moment of, oh, do I share this? It's a tough moment. But we'll make sure all of this stuff is in show notes. And I appreciate the time you spent with us. How do people connect with you? Where do they find you on the web? Where do they, you know, you know, get in touch with your masterminds? Those sorts of things.
1: Absolutely. So, I would love for anyone to connect with me on my Facebook group on Facebook. So we have a community of incredibly high vibe entrepreneurs who are doing massive things, and you should absolutely join us there. It is Moneyful Mentors. If you search Moneyful Mentors in Facebook, it will pop right up, and we'll make sure you have the link and all that good stuff. I have a gift for you. We've been talking about high ticket sales and how to increase your enrollment. So, I put together a little gift just for you guys. It's called the seven secrets of doubling your high ticket sales enrollment rate. So, I'm going to give that to you as well. And always feel free to hop on my website, mfrecoaches.com, where you can find me and you can get any information. And for everyone listening to this in particular, I would love to offer a complimentary strategy session, which you can get right on my website. So, come on over. And I love to talk to
0: you. Thanks for coming on, Riley. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening.
2: Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindfulmoney. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.